hey, we believe in education in this church. Uh, it's not just a good idea, it's part of our doctrine. You, you have, you know, Elder Uchtdorf said, you know, for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, education is not just a good idea, it's a commandment. You know, President Nelson says it's a spiritual responsibility. And yet, it's very hard for many people to get their mind around doing this when they, you know, they can't afford it. They don't have a history of education in their family. They work full time. They're parents, and they can't. The idea of getting up onto a campus locally or even moving seems impossible. And then, you know, they don't think they can do it. They, they, they don't have a pattern or a history of education, and they lack the confidence. And BYU Pathway was created for them, not for some niche, but for the majority of the domestic church and for almost all of the international church. Welcome to the Cultural Hall. Many of you have maybe never heard an episode of the Cultural Hall, and we want to tell you thank you for finding us. We've been around for over 10 years now and are coming up on our 500th episode. So I would ask you, where you been? Uh, we come at you every week with two episodes. One of those episodes is all about news about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Anything that hits our news triggers, we bring it and present it to you. Sometimes lighthearted, sometimes very serious. And then typically on any given week, we do an interview. We talk with someone within the church, someone who is a mover, a shaker, an innovator, a disruptor, or a leader, and we get an idea of who they are, where they come from, and what their, uh, what their legacy is, what their hope for the church is, how they interact with the church, and how they're making a difference. So we hope that you will uh, come, stick around, and even subscribe to the Cultural Hall. I'm lucky and thankful to be able to share this episode with President Clark Gilbert from BYU Pathway here on this episode of the Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of the Cultural Hall, and I'm honored to be speaking with President Clark Gilbert. Now, you hear president and you think, well, uh, not the United States. No, not a foreign country. Uh, he is the president of BYU Pathway. Do you even know what that is? We're going to talk about that in this episode. And also, is President Clark Gilbert destined for one of the velvet chairs? I know those that are presidents of institutions within the church sometimes end themselves up in church leadership. Will that be the fate of Clark Gilbert? We'll talk about all that and get to know him. Welcome, Clark. How are you? I'm great. Good to be with you. Now, let's start there because, um, you know, I, I know several previous apostles have been those that have headed up, you know, places like Rick's, now BYU-Idaho, places like BYU-Provo, and, and, and so on. Will we one day be hearing from you every six months? Well, I don't know about that, but I will say these assignments, are assignments that come from the first presidency of the church, and they really are a spiritual stewardship, not just an academic stewardship. When I served as the president of BYU-Idaho, one of the central areas of instruction I got from President Nelson was not just around how to run the university, but things he wanted us to emphasize and teach as the president of the university, and not just me, but my wife, Christine. And we were counseled to teach the importance of the family and to share a family with the students. And, mm -hmm. and at BYU Pathway, you know, we're not just providing affordable, low-cost education all across the church, but we're trying to help build disciples of Jesus Christ. And so whether it's at BYU or BYU Pathway or any of the church schools, 
um, these assignments to preside over these institutions are not just academic or professional. They, they really do carry a spiritual stewardship and, a, and, and are a special and sacred assignment from the Church. Yeah, and now, and now I feel sort of bad that I said that sort of glibly, but, I, but I, it's an interesting path, uh, if you can forgive the pun, since we'll be talking about BYU Pathway, um, that you have found yourself in to lead these great institutions, and as you said, to be assigned from, uh, from God's leadership on earth to do the things that you're doing. I want to dial it way back. Growing up, is this what you wanted to do? You know, I, I grew up in Scottsdale, Arizona. My dad uh, used to say, kids, you can go to any school you want to, but BYU's paid for it. Um, <laughs> I was one of the few non-members in my high school. And I got to BYU, and I just fell in love with the place and the experience. For the first time, I was gathered with the strength of the church. And I, I at, at that time, thought I would go back to BYU, and I loved it. And, you know, I just, I would read, the, you know, the history of BYU, multi-part history, and study, you know, educating Zion, and, and I just saw how, a church education that changed my life so much. And, you know, I would take every course and think, well, when I come back and teach at BYU, you know, I'll teach this course. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, and then, and so I got a, I got a doctorate thinking I wanted to go be in the church educational system. And, and, you know, halfway through my doctorate, I found out like, oh, this is like a real thing. You don't just do this because you want to go teach at BYU. It's like <laughs> a career. <laughs> and, you know, I, I had to learn how to do research design and, you know, quantitative methods and develop a research hypothesis and nested body of literature. And it was interesting while I was doing that, I stumbled into a research question, which is, you know, not only how do organizations innovate, but how do they create new models that are sometimes different and incongruent with the, with the way we've done things in the past. And I studied under an uh, individual named Clay Christensen at the Harvard Business School, mm-hmm. and this led me to study that question in great depth over 10 years in my career, both as a doctoral student and then later when I joined the faculty at the Harvard Business School. And in hindsight, I really felt like the Lord put me into those opportunities and with those questions, so I could serve later at BYU-Idaho and now at BYU Pathway. And Kim Clark, who was the president of BYU-Idaho before me, played a big role in that. And in fact, Richie, if you're okay, I ought to tell I don't know if this story's been told externally, but when Kim was serving as the dean of the Harvard Business School, and I was just a junior faculty member, just head down doing my research and and trying to make it through the tenure. And um, I had had an experience with President Henry B. Eyring, where he told, shared with me his experience at Ricks College, and and an exchange he had, where I won't go into it in depth, but it was very clear to him serving in the church was an honor, not an obligation. And whenever we have those opportunities, we should count them as a blessing to us. And I shared that story with uh, Kim Clark, Elder Kim B. Clark, then Dean Kim Clark. Mm -hmm. And um, he ended up 
getting asked if he'd be interested in replacing Elder Bednar as the president of Ricks College. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, the first time he heard about it, he someone had asked him, and it hadn't been a calling. It was just kind of an exploratory, informal uh, feeler that went out. And he said, no, you know, I, I wouldn't really be interested in that. But, of course, if President Hinckley called me, I, I'd do it. Mm-hmm. And he said, right when I said that, the spirit said, wrong answer. <laughs> and he said, I got back on the phone. And I called this friend up who was uh, not extending a calling to Cam Clark, but but just exploring it. And he said, I gave you the wrong answer. Mm. If I ever had the opportunity to serve in that capacity, I'd be honored. And two weeks later, President Hinckley called Kim Clark as the dean of the, or as the president of BYU-Idaho, and off he went. And, you know, a year later, rather than, you know, fill my life's dream, I had an offer to go to the business school at BYU or, you know, stay and uh, progress on my tenure track at Harvard Business School. Kim called me and said, I'd like you to pray about a different option. And it took our family from Boston, Massachusetts to Rexburg, Idaho. Um, it wasn't a call from the first presidency. It was an invitation from then, the then president to pray about it. And Christy and I got what we would describe as an unambiguous answer, mm-hmm. that that's where the Lord wanted us to serve. And, and it really pivoted our lives and put us on this path. But we would have never have forecast this way back when. I just wanted to be a teacher at BYU. Yeah. I love hearing stories like that. And um, like when, I, when I'm when i inspired to uh, feel the spirit of, of like what you just said, I stop and I think, am I doing that? Is that, am I listening to, the, to a voice? You know, very popular within the church right now, and rightfully so, is the idea of hearing him. Am I taking the yeah. moment to to really hear what it is, or do I think, oh, no, my path, I've laid this out. The next obvious step for me professionally is this thing. Uh, and like you say, if you and you probably would have been very successful to just continue to follow uh, the, the path that was laid out for you. But but hearing the voice and 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 then heeding the voice doing things has led your life in a completely different way. You know, and, and I, w- I would, you know, caution all of us. I, I have on my a desk, a, a statue of the Minuteman that is a replica of the statue in Concord, Massachusetts, of the uh, Minuteman soldier with one hand on the plow and one hand on the gun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I while, while we followed that path to Rexburg, you know, the Lord was using us in Boston to build the church in Boston, to be an example on the faculty at the Harvard Business School, to serve the young men we served with, to raise our children there. And I think sometimes in the church we think, well, you know, I hope I get called as a bishop or a stake president or a Relief Society president, and you know, or help I, you know, get called off on a mission or off to Rick's College in BYU, Idaho, or BYU, and you know, the Lord, the Lord will call us all. And why I love that statue uh, of the man is that I really feel that in the church. We're all like the Minutemen. We have a hand on the gun and a hand on the plow. And, you know, one day we're, you know, we're called to use the plow to provide for our families and raise our children. 
the next day, you know, we've got to pick up the gun and, you know, serve in, as a bishop or a young women's president or, you know, or go to BYU-Idaho. But, but you know, it's really not where we serve. It's just, are we, like that Minuteman soldier, ready to go wherever we're called to go every day? And, you know, I, I think it's a mistake. Some, some of us who work in the church have sacrificed a lot to follow these paths. Mm-hmm. But we have members all across the church who sacrifice because we have a lay clergy. Right. <laughs> and everyone in this church lifts and builds the church. And it's almost become cliche to cite Elder Uchtdorf's, you know, lift where you stand. But that is our church. Mm-hmm. And people do that. And I, I, I feel direction and inspiration at a level that is significant, given the burden and stewardship I have right now. But the design and structure of that, in my mind, was no different than when I was just doing my best to be a young father and serve in the stake young men's in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, I want to take a break real quick. When we come back, I want to talk about what that's like to get the call and then obviously the stewardship to be a president of a university. To me, that seems so intimidating. So we'll take a a quick break. We'll come back and pick it up right there. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Hey, this is Dan, the Laptop Man from PC Laptops. Friends, I know a lot of you guys and girls are working from home. So here's some tips for making sure your computer is ready for working at home, because if your computer fails, it's going to be really hard to get it fixed because of dwindling supply and parts. But we have parts right now, and we have a limited supply of new computers available for you. Make sure your computer is healthy and virus and malware-free. Hackers are trying to infect people and stealing their information during these challenging times. We'll scan the health of your computer for viruses and malware, plus scan your hard drive, memory, and components to make sure you don't have any failing parts. You want to make sure you have strong antivirus and malware protection software as well. Just get into any PC laptops and we'll check your hardware and your software and scan your computer for viruses for absolutely free. Just go to PCLaptops.com. At PC Laptops, we've been serving you for over 28 years, and we've got your back during these times of need. We're all in this together. So just go to PCLaptops.com, and we'll get you taken care of. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, encourage you, if you have uh, guest suggestions for future episodes of the Cultural Hall, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is contact at theculturalhall.com. Whether that guest suggestion is yourself, or you're like, oh, there's somebody in my ward, or I just read a book, or I saw a YouTube video, and you should chat with that person, you can send that along to contact at theculturalhall.com. That email is always open, and it doesn't even have to be a guest suggestion. If you just want to say, hey, I really love that episode with Clark Gilbert, you can send that there as well. It's contact at theculturalhall.com. So, uh, Clark, I hope that it's okay that I call you Clark, or should I be calling you president? No, that's great. My kids don't call me president. <laughs> and when President Nelson called, announced us as the president of BYU-Idaho, he said, Dr. Clark G. Gilbert. My kids looked at me like, 
Who's that? <laughs> I love kid, kids are the are the greatest uh, uh, trick of humility, aren't they? Like yes, just they when are. you're starting to feel great about yourself, the kids will kids will keep you nice and humble. But I am curious. So you you go to um, BYU Idaho at first as a professor and then as uh, president. Is that am I yeah, understanding I was, the word? I was in I was in uh, President Kim Clark's administration um, as an associate academic vice president. And then the call that you're going to yeah, take his place. Actually, there was a gap in that window. Um, I mentioned I had uh, done work on technological discontinuities when I was on the faculty uh, at the Harvard Business School, and my research data set was the U.S. newspaper industry. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I was, uh, as I was serving at BYU-Idaho, the church asked me if I would come down and eventually run all of the church media companies in Salt Lake and, so, and help them with their transition from analog to digital. And so first with the Desert News and then with KSL Properties, Wait. we created, you know, KSL Classifieds, KSL.com, DesertNews.com, and really built out those assets over five years. And so I left academia and um, was in, here in Salt Lake running the church media companies. And in the middle of that, I was called back again to be president of BYU-Idaho. So a quick pause there. The the juggernaut that is, for people that don't live in the state of Utah or even the Intermountain West, like when people say, oh, post that on KSL, it's the equivalent for us here, like a Craigslist or like putting it on eBay. It's not just, you know, the church came up with a silly little property and some people use it as a website. It is millions of hits a month, as I understand it. Yeah, much more than that. Hundreds of millions. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the only market in the U.S. where the, a local media company has the largest classified portal in, uh, in the market. And, and between KSL.com, KSL Classifieds, Desert News, um, we really built out this new capability. And, and in many ways, it's like what I would later do at BYU-Idaho now with Pathway, which is, you know, there's a traditional model and then online news and online media comes along and it changes the model and how do you navigate that change process and um after you know five years here uh, i was called back as the president of byu idaho and you keep wanting to talk about that and i want to get there but i want to ask you a couple yeah. questions because we know as we've recently sort of reported here in the cultural hall uh, that uh, with the new year that um deseret news will not be doing that daily print paper that so many of those things have moved online. Did they tap your expertise to get involved with that as well? Yeah, that's really the culmination of work we did five years ago to build a digital capability long before the paper would reach its demise. And a lot of my research showed that the the old model usually stays around for a long time. And at the time you need to build the new model, the old model is still viable. Mm-hmm. And so organizations need to build these new disruptive models when when they don't initially need them, and so that when they do need them, they've al- they've already got them there and available. And and that that digital capability was really laid out years ago, um, so that this transition could happen. Is there a little bit of heartbreak for you though, knowing that there won't be that daily newspaper in your hand or on your doorstep? You know, uh, only as a personal consumer, I grew over the years to love the physical paper, but 
uh, you know, I read at the time of the announcement uh, that digital audience for Deseret News was 500 times the print audience. Hmm. So at a certain point, it's kind of silly and maybe a little romantic, but also a little silly to hold on to the print model when, you know, 500 readers are online for every one reader in print. And, you know, the desertnews.com has really become a global source for faith and family all over the church and even with people outside of the church. There's very few organizations who cover religious liberty or the, the decline of the American family and its effect on poverty. And those topics, you know, people would always say to me, well, you know, who the role of news media is to be the voice for the voiceless. And, you know, who's going to stand up against the church? And, I, you know, I would always reframe it. You know, well, who's the voice for people of faith? Yeah. Uh, you know, who's the voice for the American family that's under the most rapid decline in the history of Western civilization? No one's covering it. Mm-hmm. And, and it, you know, it led the Desert News. I, you know, we started the American Family Survey that's picked up and used nationally. We did a multi-part series with The Atlantic on Fatherless America. And, you know, these were things people were never going to partner with the Desert News for, you know, West Valley, you know, crime stories, but, <laughs> but, but nationally relevant stories on what's the state of religious liberty, you know, what's the state of the American family. The, the Desert News really is a distinctive voice and with a distinctive strategy for that. And that's why I think its online audience has grown so much. But it now reaches people not just in the three main counties that its print paper went to, but it literally has a readership all over the world. It's interesting to know all of that, uh, not only background around that, but also the the um, the acclaim that the Deseret News has. I think sort of within the church, we're like, oh, yeah, it's the church paper. And then we're sort of discounted, at least in some circles, because, oh, that's the that's the Mormon paper. Right. That's the that's that's that church paper. But but really doing groundbreaking and uh, tremendous things worth of note. And people are starting to take note. Yeah, we we had a phrase for the Desert News that was when your family needs to know more. And it was, you know, the the anchor was, you know, it's news around faith and family, but the needs to know more signaled there would be depth and rigor and insight and and the and really the effort to avoid polemics which have become so prominent. And so yes, it is the newspaper of record here in the church's headquarters, but it's also become a a national, even a global voice for faith and family. So you change the world at Deseret News. You're you're functioning fine there. You're changing everything and and uh, exponentially growing it. And then, how does the phone call work that calls you back up to Rexburg? Um, you know, we we got a call to come meet with uh, then President Uchtdorf, who was serving in the first presidency. Mm-hmm. Now and, is is that done um, by is that done by President Uchtdorf himself or a, a secretary? And then you get that secretary scheduled it. Yeah, uh, but I knew, and given my role, I had frequent interaction with many of the senior brethren, so I wasn't too surprised to get a call like that. When where I got a little nervous is when it said, "She said, uh, bring your wife." Oh, <laughs> <Which, laughs> uh, and uh, in fact, I was I was on a I had just landed at a conference uh, on the future of media and was doing a whole training session with the Wall Street Journal, 
you know, who was out studying what we were doing at the Desert News, and I had just landed when I got the call, and I said, well, should I just get back on the plane and fly back to Salt Lake? And, um, and she said, no, no, we can do it three days from now. And I wish I had gotten back on the plane, because for three days I had to turn over in my mind what it was going to be. Uh. And, uh, and Christine and I thought we were getting a mission call. We, uh, in fact, I maybe shouldn't admit this, but the church news reported to me at the time, and I talked to the editor and I asked her, you know, hey, Jerry, it's a little late in the season, but are there any missions left? And we had, <laughs> I answered my mission in Japan, and she said, yeah, there's nine missions left to be announced. And, and I said, are there any in Japan? <laughs> She's like, what are you asking? Yeah, yeah. And, so we and when Elder or President Uthor called us um, to the calling, he he extended it. He said, "There's going to be a change in the leadership at BYU Idaho. We'd like to call you to be the next president." Wow! Um, and I told him, we told him, we thought we were getting a call to be mission presidents. And he says, "Well, you will be, but you'll have thirty thousand missionaries." Oh. And and then at the time, President Nelson. Uh, was serving as the chairman of the executive committee of the church education board. And um, we left Elder Uchtdorf's office and went upstairs to meet with President Nelson. And he gave me, he gave us our specific charge on, you know, what, what they wanted us to focus on uh, the unique model of, of BYU, Idaho. And, um, and he said at the time, um, you know, the, the model of BYU-Idaho is working and working really well. Um, but the, the one thing we need to figure out is what to do with Pathway. I did, you know, I, it was prophetic in more than one sense of that term. Mm-hmm. And um, and then he taught us about the importance of teaching the family to the students and um, engaging in their spiritual and personal uh, development. And, you know, the students at BYU-Idaho have a you know, wonderful, unique relationship with the president there. And, you know, it was just such an honor. And we, we took that assignment to teach the importance of the family really seriously. And Christian and I had into our home every every Monday night we were there, the entire uh, two years, we had a ward in our home. And we did a family home evening with our children and the ward. Oh, wow. Um and we taught the eternal family course. Um, and I, you know, I say we taught what, what we would do is we take a week of the course and we teach every section in the whole school that week. So if you were in the eternal family course, uh, and week six, every section in the whole school we, uh, would be with me and Christine oh, wow. for that week. And it was, that was a wonderful experience. And we, involved their children. We shared things around our family on social media that that showed the students what it was like to have family prayer and family home evening and eat together as a family. And um, our devotionals were often informed by that charge. So, you know, when, when we say this is not just a prof- uh, professional or academic assignment, you know, we, we received a instruction from president nelson and we took that very seriously and we prayed over that and it, it really affected you know i had to do things around the curriculum and of course around this growing program called pathway and um but i would say a big chunk of the impressions and, and inspiration i had just personally was tied to this charge from president nelson 
to teach the importance of the family to the students. I want to press pause on that, and I want to ask you something, because you are one that I feel like can impact the way that we do things in the church. Can we try and get away from that, hey, I want to talk to you, can I talk to you in several days? Because myself, like yourself, I run those things through my mind and anxiety, and I'm just like, what? To the point that my most recent calling that I received just at the ward level, I said, listen, I'll do whatever it is, but text me back what it is that you would like me to do. You know I'm going to do it. Just don't make me wait to find out what it is. Well, just, you know, just just, tell me. Just tell me. I, I love I love that uh, perspective. I've felt some of those same feelings. I, I, I would just say, though, I think, I think the Lord doesn't just find humor in having a squirm here and there, but, but he prepares our hearts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and hopefully the Lord was preparing our heart all the way back in Boston. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I've had callings in the church where I, I didn't know what it was, but I could feel the Lord working on me long before. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, sometimes when we prepare for an interview or a calling or an assignment, the Lord will give us those moments where we can pause and reflect and take inventory and make sure we're, we're where He needs us to be. And, you know, the, the amazing thing in this church is just that all of us are given opportunities to lift and serve and, and do something more than we thought we could do. And, you know, it's, you know, I, I often say to, you know, my friends who aren't of our faith that, look, I know of no institution in the world that provides such universal opportunities for service. I know of no institution in the world that pushes so systematically a reflection on men to be better husbands and fathers and women to be better mothers and uh, spouses. And it's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing that, <laughs> that we get to squirm and, and wait and, and have to reflect at times because it, it helps us all take a little bit of inventory on who we are and where we are in our lives. You know, and, and a unique thing about um, this particular calling is it's not just you, it's also your wife. And, and yes. as you have uh, taught by example, certainly as you've brought people into your home, th- there is a tremendous amount of, of weight then placed upon not only your relationship, but also your, your wife. Take a second and talk about the character of, of her and how, how and what that looks like in your relationship, because she could very easily just be like, Clark, we're not doing that. <laughs> well, uh, it's hard not to get emotional thinking about the impact Christine's had in my life. I, there's no way I'd be serving in these assignments without her. And, you know, even all the way back to Boston, I, I had a calling there working with the inner city youth and saved my mission up to that point. I'd never worked so hard on something and cared so much about a group of people than I did those inner city young men. And I was gone a lot. And I knew my wife uh, was completely unified in that effort. And when I, when I was gone, you know, in, in those units on Sundays and during the week, you know, I, I still felt like we were together because we were doing what both of us wanted to do. And she was an early morning seminary teacher. And I mean, (laughs) when I say this church gives you opportunities to serve, (laughs) she was called at eight months in her pregnancy to have seminary in our home every morning, early morning. But, but that gave me a chance to support her and her calling. And 
Christian and I have always found that when we're unified, if we're doing what we know the Lord wants us to do, it doesn't matter who's where and who's doing what. We're we're completely aligned, and I would be in Boston, or she'd be up with the seminary kids, and we felt like we were serving together. And you know, when when I first received the invitation from Kim Clark to pray about another option to mm-hmm. go to Rexburg, and I mean, really, completely uh, inflect my entire path I had planned. Um, it was my wife who said, "You need to pray about this." Yeah, and uh, you know, it was my wife who knew it was something was coming. And, you know, I wanted to stay in Boston and I had worked my whole career to get this job offer at BYU. And, and, you know, she was from Provo and, you know, know, let's go. She's like, I, you know, I'm just not getting the answer yet, Clark. And then Kim Clark called and we, we knew. And, um, and uh, she's, you know, she expects a lot of me. She disarms people who get nervous because they're interacting with the president of a university or, you know, someone with a uh, visible church assignment. Mm -hmm. She's just warm and kind and authentic and keeps me grounded and keeps me, frankly, remembering uh, that my first calling is here in our home. And, you know, we we have eight children, two down at BYU and six here at home. And, um, you know, I, you know, I've I've been so blessed to have Christine help me become who I needed to become throughout my life, not just in these callings, but really leading up to these callings. And and what you didn't know is that uh, Rexburg is essentially the Boston of Idaho, so not too much different <laughs> uh, between those two things as you make you know you make it, that it was move. Interesting though, because people would ask, "Oh, is it so different?" and we we worked and served with some amazing people in the Boston stake, and, and they were consecrated. The gospel was first in their lives. They served and invested in other people, and they were really people who were on the covenant path and helped inspire you to want to be on that path as well. And um, early in our careers, I, you know, I, I saw you know, Clay Christensen at the Harvard Business School and Kim Clark, the dean of the Harvard Business School. Mm-hmm. And Mitt Romney was our gospel doctrine teacher. And, you know, Roger Porter taught at the Harvard Kennedy School. And none of these people let their career success define who they were. They were their first commitment in life was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a young couple with a young family, early in our career, we took note and and we tried to be living on that covenant path. And when I got to Rexburg, I felt like I was home with the same kinds of people. And the, the, that community there, they're, they're there for, you think about it, it's historically a gritty, earthy, you know, farm community mm-hmm. mixed in with an academic community who all likely took uh, financial sacrifice and career sacrifice to come serve and be part of that university. And they're just amazing people and amazing families to have our children around. And, you know, we just we just felt when we came from Boston to Rexburg that um, on the things that we cared the most about, nothing had changed. We were surrounded with covenant-keeping uh, people who were on that covenant path and inspiring us to be better people. I want to take another break. When we come back, I want to let people know what a BYU pathway is. Certainly, it's not only your current calling, but there are a lot of people that are like, 
oh, maybe I saw a billboard or a commercial during general conference on BYU TV, but I have no idea what that is, uh, who even attends that, and and how they would want to be involved. Uh, so let's come back and do that in the third block of the Cultural Hall. There are many great benefits of listening to the Cultural Hall. Certainly, we have great conversations like this conversation with President Gilbert. But what else? What else is in it for you? I know you're asking yourself that question. Well, you can save yourself 15% at Deseret Book if you use the password, the promo code Richie when you do checkout. Now, if you go to theculturalhall.com, look on the right-hand side. That will just give you to the store that gets you all the 15% off. It's all of the authors that we've had here in the Cultural Hall. You can hear the episodes that we've had with them, be able to hear all about their book, and then the best part, save 15% on their books. So go to theculturalhall.com, look for the Deseret Book uh, ad there on the right-hand side. You can click on it, or you can just shop on deseretbook.com, and when you use the promo code Richie, you could, in fact, save 15%. Go do it and check out the great books from the authors that we've had here in the Cultural Hall. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, if you're enjoying this conversation and you would like to support the Cultural Hall as it goes into perpetuity, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall and pledge a couple bucks. Think of us like uh, Netflix for your ears. Uh, That helps us to be able to do the show as we move forward. Again, it's patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. Remember, if you become a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall, you get to be a part of the secret but not sacred Facebook group where everyone who's the super fans of the show hang out. Now, Clark, uh, now I feel bad. I feel like I should call you President Gilbert, but I'm going to stick with Clark. When we talk about BYU Pathway... Uh, that's an, an entirely different thing than the Deseret News, an entirely different thing than BYU-Idaho. What is it? So BYU Pathway was created for people who wouldn't have access to a traditional university education. And the reasons for that might be because they couldn't afford it. Um, they couldn't get to one of our campuses. Uh, their life circumstances just wouldn't allow them to leave their work or their location and come to a campus. and and, uh, and also for people who didn't think they could succeed in education. And BYU Pathway was really created to provide that hope and that catalyst and that resource for people who didn't think they would otherwise be able to do it. Uh, there's a lot of people, when I've had the conversations, just sort of casually that go, yeah, I think it has something to do with the Perpetual Education Fund. Is there any sort of crossover? Well, it has its roots in that same motivation, although it's in the case of BYU Pathway, it started domestically and went international, and the Perpetual Education Fund is just international. And the PEF, which it's referred to, is often, you know, used for people who needed a loan to go to college locally, and and it's been a wonderful blessing in the lives of thousands and thousands of people. But BYU Pathway is almost a complement to that, but in that same vein of hey, we believe in education in this church. Uh, it's not just a good idea. It's part of our doctrine. Um, you, you have, you know, Elder Uchtdorf said, you know, for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, education is not just a good idea. It's a commandment. Mm-hmm. You know, President Nelson says it's a spiritual responsibility. And yet it's very hard for many people to get their mind around doing this when they, you know, they can't afford it. They don't have a history of education in their family. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they work full time. Their parents and 
the camp, the idea of getting up onto a campus locally or even um, moving to a you know Rexburg, Provo, or Laia is just seems impossible. And and then you know they don't think they can do it. They they, they don't have a pattern or a history of education, and they lack the confidence. And and by the way, that's that's fifty five percent of the domestic church doesn't have a bachelor's degree. Really? So. And if you go internationally, it's 85 to 90 percent. Wow. BYU Pathway was created for them, not for some niche, but for the majority of the domestic church and for almost all of the international church. And part of its growth is that it was designed for a different population and created with a different model than our campuses. I mean, you have... BYU is this wonderful flagship school with high academic achievement and graduate programs and a football team. And, you know, that that's wonderful as the flagship model, but it's very expensive to run that model. And then BYU-Idaho came along and said, look, we're going to just be good at one thing. It sounds crazy, but we're going to be really good at teaching. Hmm. <laughs> and and they, they focus on teaching with a year-round calendar and that, that's been a wonderful boost to the church educational system. But largely, it serves people who, for the most part, thought they were going to go to college. And it just made it, gave them a high-quality, spiritually-based education that was reasonably affordable. Mm-hmm. BYU Pathway was created for the lion's share of the church who could never come to either of those campuses, or or. BYU-Hawaii or Ensign College. And today we have 50,000 students. We're in 150 countries. It's really designed to operate wherever the church is organized. And, you know, we we read in the Doctrine of Covenants where the Lord says, wherefore I'm pleased that there should be a school in Zion. Well, we believe that BYU Pathway is a school in Zion in the sense that it's everywhere Zion is. Mm -hmm. And and you know if if you if you read in you know the Book of Mormon uh, where where you talk where it talks about the destruction of Zion, uh, we we learn that people uh, were separated by their not just by their wealth but by their chances for learning. And um, you know what what's happened with BYU Pathway is no matter who you are, no matter where you live, no matter what circumstance you're in in your life. In the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you have access to an affordable, high-quality, spiritually-based education. You know, and that, that's a miracle. And whether, whether it's here in Salt Lake City, Utah, or Accra, Ghana, or Manila, Philippines, or Sao Paulo, Brazil, in this church, we have a belief on the importance and value of education. And we found a mechanism that allows that to happen everywhere the church is organized. I think as we look back uh, on education, uh, especially online education, I think in the past, certainly before the pandemic, there was a stigma that an online education is sort of worth the pat on the head, right? Like, that's great. Yeah. You know, gr- oh, good for you. You got that. But but it is, it is a world-class education, if I can uh, repeat back to you what you just said. Like, this is not just... You know, hey, that's better than nothing. Good, go on your way. This is this is legitimate, rigorous education. That's right, and it comes in three forms, and I'll just describe those. One is all of our courses, all of our degrees and certificates come from BYU Idaho or BYU Pathway. There, it's there that curriculum 
with those learning outcomes, those same assessments. So when you complete a course through BYU Pathway, you're, you're earning the same degree that the students on the campuses of those schools earn. And it's not just that it has the same name. It's the same courses, the same tests, <laughs> mm-hmm. the same uh, outcomes for those courses. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is the online courses are rigorous and high quality, and they go through robust testing and evaluation and, and continuous improvement. So when you take an online course from BYU Pathway, it's been reviewed and improved over and over and over again. And you have a really high quality academic experience. And then the third thing is, you know, a lot of people, when they think online learning, they think I'm up late in the night (laughs) by myself, staring at a laptop all alone. Mm -hmm. And that's the opposite of the experience of BYU Pathway. Turn the lights on. (laughs) You're working with other people. You're in cohorts, progressing together with groups of other students. You're doing work together. You have peers in your section that are helping you progress through the curriculum together. It's interactive. It's dynamic. It's not a talking head and a syllabus posted online. Now, you use the word cohort like maybe it means a little bit more than what I'm thinking. Is it, is, are you assigned like a cohort, like a learning group? Is that what you mean when you say yeah. cohort? So when we start the program, the first three courses students take, and these all count toward their degree, but they have a life skills course, a professional skills course, and a university study skills course. Those three courses are taken in sequence with the same group. You're with the same students through Mm. all three of those. Mm. You get to know them. You know, you might be, you know, a mom here in Tooele, Utah, and uh, a guy going back to work in South Jordan, and someone from Scottsdale, Arizona, who's, you know, working his way through the course. And you embed each other into the course content. You work through it with each other. You ask each other questions, and you go through that that experience all together. What we found is this is a dramatic boost to academic performance. It's a dramatic boost to retention. And by the way, we've known this in the academic research on student persistence for a long time. Most universities just don't do it because it's a lot of work to keep people in a cohort. But uh, we knew at BYU Pathway, we had to do things differently. And one, one of the things we do is this cohort experience. And you'll, you'll talk to students. We have 96% of our students go through that experience and say, I'd recommend it to a friend. Wow. You know, our biggest, the biggest reason we're growing so fast is students have amazing experiences. And they tell it to their parents, to their spouses to their bishop and and the word of mouth just you know expands exponentially and you know and a big part of the reason that students have such good experiences is the courses are high quality but even more importantly the way we engage the learning is just so much more interactive and dynamic than what most students expect from an online program and i hear you describe those first initial courses and i'm thinking how can we make every person take those? Like a, a great life skills course, I feel like everyone could probably benefit from something like that, well, not just these students that are, that are accessing this. Again, we're just doing things that 
the academic literature has been saying to do for two decades. We just, for BYU Pathway, we had a fresh start and we said, let's design it the way it should be designed. And by the way, the other thing we know is that students who don't know how to write well and don't know how to use quantitative reasoning effectively, they usually quit college after the first year. So even though this is a life skills and a professional skills and a college skills course, we're also teaching math and we're also teaching writing. But instead of doing algebraic substitution in a freshman algebra class, uh, we're calculating the pre and post income differences and the time value of money over having a college degree and not. It's all very applied. Yeah. And then the students are like, yeah, that's why you need math. (laughs) And instead of doing, you know, a narrative essay, uh, we have them write a cover letter and do a LinkedIn profile. And so we're teaching the academic skills students need to be successful, but we're teaching them in very applied, practical ways. And the students just love it. And and it's not what they thought college would be. It's think think about it. If if you're a first generation college student, your parents didn't go to school, your older siblings didn't go to college, and you're in the lower income mm-hmm. quartile. Mm-hmm. You're a freshman walking onto a campus in most colleges in America. What's the first year courses you take? What's the very first year mostly comprised of? Like, what did you do when you went to college? What were your first year courses? My, my first year courses were all general eds that I didn't have very much interest in that I was discouraged as to whether or not I would continue college. Yeah, that is the quintessential American freshman college experience. Mm-hmm. And if you were a first-generation college student and you were low-income and for the first time in your life actually paying money <laughs> to go to school, mm-hmm. you're sitting there in those GE classes going, what am I doing? I'm just going to go work. Yeah. This is hard. It's not fun. I don't have any context for it. I'm doing poorly, and it costs me money. <laughs> and what what we found is we do these very applied courses up front, and then the very next thing is we give you a job skill in a certificate program that improves your job immediately. And all of a sudden, we've been reading quotes from the prophets about the importance of education, and you've kind of been nodding your head. You realize this is fun. Mm-hmm. You're good at it. You It's applied. You can get a better job. And all of a sudden, you say, oh, I get it. College is worth it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and our our persistence rates are constantly among the highest in the nation, uh, especially for our student uh, risk profile. And and a big part of that is we teach you life skills up front, we give you credit for it, and then we get you a job skill in the first semester. And some people say, "Oh, well you're just doing job training." Well, yes we are. And but we're not anti-general education. We love general education. Right. We think it's a fundamental part of becoming a citizen in society and becoming a faithful and thoughtful member of the church. But we're going to sequence that at a time when you're more likely to succeed in it. And it's just, it's just absolutely changed the arc and narrative of the first-year experience for first-generation and low-income college students. And for us, we we look at this and we're like, you know, we have you know spiritual and 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 academic reasons for doing it, but 
We also think that it's just a moral imperative. If you're going to serve high-risk populations who don't know if they can succeed, you know, not doing what we're doing would be irresponsible. And it's just, it's had a dramatic impact on our growth and on the success of our students in the program. I know that my time with you is running short. I have a speculative question, and I know that people like yourself love these kind of things. What do you think, as you look at organizations and processes, and and certainly you've engaged within the education, but as a church as a whole, what, as we come on the other side of this pandemic, what do you think we're going to take from this time and see it change in the either the way we worship or the way we interact or, or within the church? What do you think will be changed? You know, it, it is amazing how we learn in these difficult times. I serve my mission in Japan, and we have a proverb in Japanese that says, Kurushi toki no kamidanomi, which means in difficult times, you lean into or remember God. And I think we're going to see the pandemic has taught us things that need to change. It's helped us prioritize things that are critical and things that aren't. It's turned us back to God. And, you know, any, any crisis, you know, whether it's economic or episodic event-based, it, it accelerates trends that we're already you know, BYU Pathways enrollment growth, it's just accelerating because of the pandemic. But the, but the trends in the unique model of Pathway was already in place. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the pandemic's changing the way we do missionary work. Yeah. But these, many of the things we're doing, we, we knew they were there, but the pandemic's just accelerated the use of them. I think home-centered, church-supported church which, you know, if there ever was evidence of uh, living prophet and prophetic guidance, it's what happened, you know, to this church in preparation for this global pandemic as we learned how to do church in our homes mm-hmm. long before we had to. And um, I think we're going to find, look, our, our homes, a lot more needs to happen in our homes than we ever imagined. It was kind of a nicety and a novelty when it was first introduced. But it should have, like it now has become, become a central part of our worship and our identity of members of the church. And so I, I think that this pandemic is going to accelerate, but some of the things will look like they're new, but they were there already. Yeah. And, you know, by, by being forced to do hard things, being forced to look at it a different way, being forced to remember God and look to the prophet in a way we might not always have done. All of those things are going to combine to amplify changes. And, and I think if we really study them in hindsight, we'll find some of the innovations were new, but many of them were right there lurking in the background. And we just didn't realize what we had until the pandemic was thrust upon us. Uh, we ask three questions of everyone who steps into the cultural hall. The first one uh, is, do you have a calling? And if so, what is it? And I already know that one. So I'll ask you the second one. Uh, if you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Well, uh, my favorite assignment in the church has always been serving with the youth, in particular with the young men. And by the way, I do have a separate calling from BYU Pathway. I serve as an area 70 here in Utah. Oh, really? Um, which makes my weekends as busy as my weekdays. Yes. But I love serving with the youth. And um, I think it's a time in our lives where testimonies are formed, where confidence is built. And I just, I love my calling in Boston, 
serving with the inner city youth. And really, up until I was called as a bishop, I think almost every calling I had over the first 20 years of my life had been in young men's. The last question we ask everyone is, what is your favorite part of your faith? You know, uh, I, I'd say two things. One is, I, I think my testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ is real. I know that, I know that we have a Savior. I know the Book of Mormon is true. Um, I know we're led by a living prophet. I have an unambiguous testimony of those things. But my testimony in practice is very practical. I, I believe because I have my prayers answered when I pray about the deeds of my children, when I pray about what James and Paige and John need in their lives, I hear the Lord answer those prayers. Hmm. And not only do I know what I need to do for them, I know God's there because He just answered my prayer. Hmm. I pray about BYU Pathway and the needs of that program. And when I get an answer, it's not just that I got insight and instruction on the needs of BYU Pathway. I had reaffirmed to me that God lives and He cares about His children. And so for me, my, the favorite part of my testimony is not just that I believe, but that it works. I love it. Uh, President Clark Gilbert, president of BYU Pathway, former president of BYU-Idaho, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. 